This evening's reading is Judges chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6, and that's page 243 in the Church Bibles. Um, so that's Judges chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 3, verse 6, page 243. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of their land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the ways of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once, but by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites, living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which he had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods.
few years ago, some friends of mine were driving from Preston to Blackpool on the M55, and one of the passengers in the back seat was using his mobile phone to film the others as they joked and laughed about. And suddenly, this camera captured their whole world erupt into chaos and everything go into a spin. Um, It had been snowing heavily and the driver had been caught out by a patch of ice and round and around the car went until eventually it uh, came to a stop on the verge and the hard shoulder. They were okay. But isn't it astonishing that just like that, so quickly our world and our lives can spiral out of control? Um, One day, a scientist and a few people who visited a market get a bit of a cough. A few days later, everyone in the world is behind their front doors, locked and scared to go outside. Um, One day, some troops get redeployed to the border of Russia. A few days later, um, cities are being bombarded with missiles, and one of our European neighbours is under attack. Um, One day, a church member puts a toe over the line of sin, and before long, they've spun off the path of following Jesus entirely. The book of Judges is a cautionary tale against this reality that so quickly our world and our lives can spiral out of control. This book is the story of how Old Testament Israel spun out of control like that car on the ice. And this story is here, at least in part, to keep us from making the same mistakes. This week in chapter two, we've got the second half of the introduction that we started last week. And uh, last week I said there are three things to expect this term while we're in Judges. Does anyone remember what uh, any of those three things were? It's a whole week ago. Uh, I can see some people whispering the right answer to the person next to them, so that's okay. Uh, Here they are. Firstly, um, we're going to be convinced how much we need King Jesus. Secondly, we're going to be warned against Canaanization, becoming like the... uh, ungodly peoples around. And thirdly, we're going to rejoice in God's surprising salvation. And if you were here last week, you will have seen an awful lot of maps up on the screen to show how Israel's partial obedience left them in a really dangerous place. Um, It left them vulnerable to ungodly influences. You might think of um, chapter one and chapter two like this. In chapter one, we had the conditions for Canaanization Now in chapter 2, we've got the process of canonization. Um, And it goes a little bit like this. We'll put it on the screen. And uh, we're going to go through it um, bit by bit. Chapter 2 doesn't necessarily happen after chapter 1, nor does it necessarily happen before chapter 3. Rather, this is a summary of a cycle that repeats time and time again throughout the book. Let's highlight that first one right at the top. Serving the Lord. That's where the cycle starts in verses 6 to 9. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, um, that might well refer to the gathering at Shechem that I mentioned last week. Um, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. And here's a detail we didn't get last time. As long as Joshua was alive, the people served the Lord. As long as the elders who were with Joshua were alive, the people served the Lord. As long as there were some leaders around who had seen the great things that the Lord their God had done, 
the people served the Lord. These were people who knew their gods. They didn't just know about God. They had personally experienced his power and saving grace. They had tasted his provision, manna from heaven. They had known his guidance, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. They had, some of them, seen God's saving grace parting the Red Sea. Um, That would have been a magnificent thing to see. They knew their God and the people served the Lord. But, as I think we can guess, those days didn't last long. Those good old saints, of course, they were mortals, and so before long they were no more. And uh, we see that in Joshua's burial, verses 8 to 9. Let's go on to the next stage of the cycle, serving idols. If we click on, thank you. Verses 10 to 12. This is the second stage in the cycle of Canaanization. After that, uh, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. This is evidence of a community's tragic failure to keep the memory of God's gracious acts alive. When God gave Israel um, the, the commandments, he said this, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Each generation had the responsibility of passing on the memory of the gracious deeds of the Lord to the next. And of course, it was the responsibility of the next generation to listen to what the older one said. Um, But whoever's fault it was, whether it was the older generation's fault or the younger generation's fault, this new generation didn't know the Lord or what he had done. I think it's unlikely that this refers to intellectual knowledge. Only a few decades have passed, and I think it's kind of unlikely that the the facts of who God is and the facts of what he had done in Egypt would have been forgotten that quickly. Rather, this new generation had no personal knowledge of God. They weren't on speaking terms. The memory of everything that he had done had no day-to-day impact on their lives. It didn't change the way they thought, the way they spoke to one another, the way they uh, acted when they went to the shops or when they were around the dinner table with their families or while they were at work. And verses 11 to 12 show the consequences of not knowing God in this way. Verse 11, Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. Having no personal knowledge of God, they couldn't remember any reason to stick with him. And being surrounded by all the peoples that they'd failed to drive out, they just decided to worship their gods as well. And the Lord had shown them tremendous grace, uh, patience and power, especially to their ancestors, but this new generation really didn't care. And I think this is a warning to us, whichever end of the generation we're at. Um, If we're at the the older generation, then this is a challenge uh, for for you guys, for us, to keep a kind of generational faith perspective, um, to to keep the gracious acts of the Lord alive in the memories of the generations that follow after us. God has no grandchildren. It is 
we'd be wrong to assume that those that follow after us will just, by ob- ob- osmosis, uh, capture a personal knowledge of God. We need to be having God's words on our lips day and night in the normal things of life, uh, whether you're a parent or whether you're part of this church family in a wider sense. Let's be passing on, uh, speaking the name of Jesus. But of course, this is not just a challenge to the older generation. This is a challenge to the younger generation as well, because it's our responsibility to listen to the stories of those that have gone before us and to value the contributions of those who are older than, older than us in church. Um, it's, it's really sad if we come to church on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening and only speak to those who are our age or younger. Let's make the most of the generation that is before us, that has known God and seen him at work in a different way than we have. On to the next cycle, uh, stage in the cycle, oppressed. Uh, from verse 12, end of verse 12 to verse 15. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served, the Baal, uh, served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. You might have noticed that the Lord's anger is mentioned twice in those verses. And I think sometimes when we come across this aspect of God's character, we can be tempted to suppress it, diminish it, or we can subconsciously say to ourselves, oh, I really wish we could just get past this whole Old Testament God of wrath and move on to the New Testament God of love. But honestly, no such distinction exists. Um, Let's say that a man is cheated on by his wife, but he doesn't get angry at this. That would be really cold. We would question whether that man ever really loved his wife. We would question whether that relationship ever mattered to him. No, if he really loves her, he's going to get angry because the relationship matters And so too with God. He's angry with Israel because he loves them. His anger is a consequence of his love. He's angry because the relationship matters to him. And there's a certain irony about what happens next. I wonder if you've spotted that. By serving the Baals and the Ashtoreths, Old Testament Israel, what are they doing? They're trying to be like the peoples around them. But here... They are oppressed by the very people they are seeking to copy. They're oppressed by the very people they're trying to copy. And it's very clearly God's doing. They find themselves helplessly caught in the hands of raiders and the hands of enemies all around. But if you look at those verses, it's the Lord that has handed them over. It's the Lord who has sold them back into slavery. And it's the hand of the Lord that keeps them from winning any of their battles. This ironic oppression where we are oppressed by the people we're trying to imitate is the unavoidable result of serving idols. It's as true today as it was back then. There's a very similar passage, Romans 1, which describes uh, people who have 
decided to serve idols instead of serving God. And there's a repeated phrase there. God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. In each case, God just hands these people over to be oppressed by the very idols that they themselves have decided to serve. And make no mistake, this will be the same or would be the same for us too. Uh, Whatever idol you choose to serve, it could be sex, money, power, comfort, whatever, your false gods will turn into your oppressive slave master. It will steal your joy. It will plunder your ambition. It will chain up your hopes. Serving anything other than God always leads to oppression. We do well to pay attention to that. Next stage in the cycle, um, distressed. Verse 15 especially, and uh, also borrowing from verse 18 Um, The next two stages in that cycle go together, actually, distressed and delivered. Um, Verse 15 ends, they were in deep distress. But before God steps in, I think most of us would sort of expect some kind of repentance. We're sort of looking for the bit where Israel says, oh, I'm sorry for what I've done wrong. We're expecting some kind of penitence, some sort of turning. And we are going to see that sometimes in Judges. We are going to see times um, where there is repentance before God saves. From our human perspective, that is the order of things. Um, Repentance happens and then God responds. We turn and then God saves and forgives. However, this chapter is from God's perspective, not ours. And from his point of view, he doesn't wait for Israel to realize just what a mess they've got themselves into. He steps in, why? Solely because of their distress. Or in the words of verse 18, if we can see that there. The Lord relented, this is the second half of verse 18, the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. Again, there's no mention of their repentance. The Lord just hears their groaning, he sees their distress, and he takes the initiative here. Repentance is left out not because it's unnecessary, not because it's unimportant. Repentance is left out of the cycle here in order to highlight that it is always God who makes the first move. Salvation is always initiated by God. That's true for us as well as Israel. Even before you turned, even before you asked for forgiveness, God saw your distress and heard your groaning, and he made the first move towards you before you moved towards him. That's what we heard this morning, and it's, it's wonderful. You aren't saved because, or you weren't saved because you bargained with God until he finally forgave you. You were saved because he saw your distress and he was filled with compassion. Uh, Moving on to the next part of the cycle, delivered, saved. Um, The way God saves in this book is through judges or rulers. That's what we see in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. 
These judges, male and female, are going to be the rulers of God's people. And time again, we're going to see the Holy Spirit falling on them, filling them, and enabling them to do uh, really great, mighty deeds. And every time a judge delivers in Israel, it's going to look like we're going to return to the very first section there, where people serve the Lord and have peace. Um, Sometimes after this deli- the deliverer comes along, the land has peace for 40 years in Judges. Sometimes it's even longer. Sometimes it's 80 years they have peace. It looks like it's just going back to the start of that cycle. However, from verse 17 onwards, we see that actually there's something else going on here. This diagram is pretty good. It's a good thing to remember serves a purpose for understanding judges. But while it's neat, it's not actually good enough. So let's click on to the next slide and see a better representation. (laughs) Um, The real pattern of judges is less like a cycle and more like scummy bath water circling the drain on its way down. It's a downward spiral As long as the judge lived that had saved them, the people served the Lord. But verse 19, if you have a look down at it there, says, But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors. Even more corrupt. And that's the impact of verse 17 as well. Um, There, the people's sin is described in more revolting language than earlier. They prostituted themselves to other gods. You might remember from a recent series that uh, David preached. He told us that Baal is or was supposed to be a weather god, and that's right. The Canaanites also looked to Baal for fertility as well. And um, Baal had many, let's call them god wives, Ashtoreths, uh, that word comes up earlier in the chapter. And um, every time Baal was in the mood with one of his Ashtoreths, let's say, uh, plants would grow, livestock would multiply, and babies would be born, or so the Canaanites thought. So worshipping Baal meant going to a shrine and sleeping with a prostitute where each of the partners would sort of play the roles of Baal and his Ashtoreths with the aim that kind of fertility would happen for the nation. It's, it's really gross. I can see the, the expressions on your faces. And that's right, because God's people are doing that now. They're prostituting themselves with other gods. They're cheating on the God who's been so faithful to them. It's a downward spiral. Every stage of that cycle we were looking at gets worse throughout the book. Their idol worship will get worse, even worse than what I've just described. Um, And their oppression will get worse. Uh, Verse 20 hints at that. God is not just angry now. Verse 20 says the Lord was very angry. And so their oppression is going to get worse. Their distress gets worse too. In the early chapters, their groanings are going to be filled with bits of repentance. But as the book goes on, 
that's going to be more and more mingled with more and more self-interest, and eventually even that is going to get lost entirely. Um, and even their judges get worse. Those early on in the book uh, do a reasonable job of being faithful to the Lord, but these deliverers become more and more corrupt as even they forget who God is and what he's done. The whole book of Judges is a circling of the drain, a downward spiral. And that cheery note is the point of Judges chapter 2. Here's the message, uh, here's the theme in one sentence. Without God's intervention, sin spirals out of control. Without God's intervention, sin spirals out of control. It's an accurate diagnosis of the human condition, I think. Um, With one hand on the wheel, the judges could just about keep Israel going in a straight line. But as soon as those judges were in the picture, that car was just destined to go back into that spiral all over again. I'm sure all of us can think of times where we've either observed or experienced that reality. One toe over the line leads to greater and greater compromises. One small lie leads to a tangled web of corruption. One seemingly innocent flirtation leads to a broken marriage and a shattered family. Without God stepping in, it happens so, so easily. It spirals out of control. Um, I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but I want to give a quick word to the young people here. Um, I'm hoping that you're young enough that you haven't experienced this yet. I really want you guys to take what I've just said really seriously. I want you to know because someone has told you rather than knowing because you've lived it. One small sin quickly becomes a big one and it quickly spirals out of control. Here are two main applications for all of us from this passage. The big message is when without God's intervention, sin spirals out of control. And here's what we do with that information. Firstly, be thankful that there is a king who lives forever. Be thankful that there is a king who lives forever. The problem with those judges is that they died. Their influence was always limited. There was limited scope to what they could do. But we have a king who is limited in none of those things. We have a king who has, yes, died, but conquered death. One who is risen and reigns forever. One whose influence is not limited in time or space. There is no uh, boundary to his kingdom. There is no end to his kingdom. As long as we listen to his words, he will keep us going in a straight line. We can trust him. And where those judges were filled with the Holy Spirit for a moment, Jesus was filled with the Spirit without limit. And not only was he filled, but he fills his people as well. So that we are not destined to that human condition where the inevitable downward spiral happens. With the spirit of Christ in us, that, is not, that does not have to be our story. Be thankful that we have a king who lives forever and keep listening to that king. 
Second big application. Recognize God's purpose, even in the spiral. Um, I didn't quite get to the end of our passage. Did you see what God said in verse 21 and 22? I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. And then uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Now, we've, we've already discovered that all those Canaanites were there and it was Israel's fault. They failed to drive them out. However, even in their failure, God had great purpose. He left those people there to test and to teach his people, to teach them warfare. Now, that doesn't mean that he wanted his people to become really skilled swordsmen and swordswomen. That's not what it was about. Israel's strength in war was only ever when they trusted in God to win their battles for them. And God has the same purpose in our trials and our ungodly influences as well. There is purpose even in our downward spirals. Um, Maybe this is a word to the old, (laughs) or those who aren't so young, and I'll include myself in that as well. We've got ourselves on downward spirals in the past, and that was our fault. That was your fault. Like, that's your responsibility, definitely. But God still has and had a purpose in that downward spiral. It was your fault, but God will still bring good out of it. Through those times, we learn that God wins our battles for us. Through those times, we learn to trust in him so that next time we go to him straight away. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you warn us because you love us. Please keep us from their story becoming our story. Father, please keep us from the small compromises that would become tragic falls. Thank you so much that we have a king who lasts forever. Thank you that he reigns. Thank you that he teaches and instructs us. Please help us to listen to him. Thank you that he fills us with the Holy Spirit. Please help us to learn to rely on you to fight and win our battles. Lord, we pray for anyone today here who is filled with regret. Lord, pray that you would bring forgiveness and healing there. And pray that you would teach them through those failings of the past so that they might serve you better in the future. 
pray for anyone here that doesn't yet know King Jesus. Pray that they would learn likewise, that without him, that downward spiral is, is their fate. Pray that they would trust in Jesus for the first time tonight. We ask in his name. Amen. Our last song um, is going to...